0: Well, good morning. You know, one of the most striking things about the person of Jesus, one of the most striking things about the person of Jesus, is that by outward appearances, you would not have been impressed by him. When you first saw him, you wouldn't have thought that you looked upon someone of significance, because he looked so normal, he looked just like any other Jewish man of that day. Which, if historians are right, he would have been anywhere from five foot five to five foot seven. So again, by outward appearances, uh, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have thought much. You wouldn't have thought that you saw someone of significance. It wasn't that his appearance drew people to him which is contrary to the way we think in our world, we elect presidents by the way that they look. But that wasn't the case with Jesus. People weren't drawn to him by his physical appearance. Well, if it wasn't by that, then what was it? Well, it was a combination, really, of three things. People were amazed by his teaching. When the crowds heard him teach, they were amazed, and they continually said, he teaches as one who has authority. He teaches as one who has authority. They realized there was something that was unique and original about Jesus' teaching because the word authority, it means out of the original stuff. So every time they heard him teach, they said, We're amazed by what he's teaching. So they were amazed at his teaching. They recognized it as unique and authoritative, and they were amazed by it. But then, secondly, They marveled at his miracles, the miracles that he performed. Both Jesus' friends and his enemies, they knew that he was a miracle worker. They all knew it. They witnessed countless miracles that Jesus did. Um, You know, it's March Madness right now. And around the cooler, around the water cooler tomorrow, there will be guys talking. They will say, Can you believe what that guy did in this game? And I watched a game last, late last night and I watched a couple, a couple plays um, in the Gonzaga game that they got blown out by. They got completely smashed. And in the game, I'm sitting there watching it and I, and I was trying to catch Jeremy Haskell this morning because Jeremy and I are the only ones who care about basketball on the TCF staff. We're going to fix that in the days ahead, by the way. We're going to hire people based upon do they like basketball and will they talk about it with me? So... I was looking for Jeremy this morning because there was some plays. I I thought, man, Jeremy and I, we got to talk about this play. Now, now we do that with basketball or some amazing athletic achievement that you, that you maybe have seen. Think about what Jesus's disciples did when they gathered around the water cooler the next morning after he raised Lazarus from the dead. Can you believe what he did? Or the next day when he spoke to the winds and the waves and everything became glass. He cast a demon, and there was no instant replace for any of this. They just, they they walked around for three and a half years stunned all the time by what Jesus did. They marveled at his miracles. So they were amazed at his teaching. They marveled at his countless miracles. And the third thing is, they were astonished by the depth of Jesus' love for humanity, There's one thing I wish Christians in our day and age really wrapped their hearts and their minds around. It's the love of Jesus. The depth at which he loved and served humanity. He lived with such a limitless love that it captivated people. He continually sought out and demonstrated love towards those that the religious community of Israel wouldn't have anything to do with. His limitless love for the least, the lost, and the left out astonished Jewish society. And the the disposition of the Lord's heart has always been to seek and to save those who are far away from God. This has always been his heart. Jesus' mission, the central focus of why he came, was to seek and to save those who are far away from God. This has been God's heart from the very beginning, right after the rebellion of Adam and Eve, beginning in Genesis chapter 3. God's heart has always been, from that moment, to seek and to save those who are far from God. That's always been the disposition of of God's heart. And it gets fleshed out so perfectly in the life of Christ. And today, in our text, we're going to see Jesus encounter two people who occupy completely opposite uh, opposite positions in that society. And yet Jesus comes to both of them. He sees both of their needs and he reaches out in love and he transforms each of their life. So turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're gonna take a, a short pause on the study of Genesis as we prepare for a resurrection morning. So Luke chapter 18. Now the background is this. It's early springtime in Israel. Uh, so picture flowers popping up on the hillsides. Picture 75 degree days and long, beautiful evenings. Picture that, wouldn't that be nice? Not snow on the ground, but 75 degree days, daffodils popping up, green grass everywhere, beautiful. This is what's taking I actually checked the weather in Jericho this week. Um, and it was, most days, it was 75 to 80 degrees each day. And as I was looking at it, it was snow was falling out my window. And I thought, hmm, sure would like to be there right now. So that's the time of the year. It's about, it's springtime. It's actually about this time of the year. It's late March, just about to early April. And so it's springtime there. And Jesus and a group of his disciples, the guys, they're making their way to Jerusalem for what would be the last Passover that they would share together. In just a matter of days, Jesus is going to ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in the triumphal entry, what's become known as the triumphal entry. And he knows it. He knows he's marching towards the cross. In fact, he predicts it to his disciples. Look at uh, Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 31. Taking the 12, taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets which means this is a long plan of redemption that God's doing. Everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and will be spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So he makes this this prediction. This is what's going to happen to me in the days ahead. Verse 34, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they, <laughs> I love how Luke does this. He, threefold, Luke says this. And they did not grasp what was said. Boy, thanks Luke for pointing out our idiocy. I mean, if you're one of the disciples after the fact, Luke says it three times here. They didn't understand. None, they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they didn't grasp what was being said. Luke wants us to. He wants us to really make sure we understand that this was not um, something that they made up long after the fact. His disciples, the disciples of Jesus, had no idea what was about to happen. They had no category for a suffering Messiah, and we'll talk about this on on Resurrection Sunday. They had no category for a middle of the age resurrection. Jews believed in one resurrection at the end of the age. Jesus says here, I'm gonna die, and then I'm going to rise. That's a resurrection in the middle of the age. They have no category for that in their mind, no category. And we'll talk why that's important on Easter morning. Um, So Jesus knew in the coming days the cross awaited him, where he would bear our sins fully. And he would die our death. And then three days later, he would rise again to new resurrection life. And as we move into our text, this is all in the foreground of Jesus' mind. The forefront of Jesus' mind is the cross. He's looking forward, looking to Jerusalem, looking right at the cross. And then he enters into these little communities. And he encounters two different people who he knows. These are the exact people that I'm coming to seek and I'm coming to save. So they're walking towards Jerusalem, and probably, uh, because of the Passover, other other pilgrims are probably with Jesus and his disciples as they're on their way to Jerusalem as well. And we pick up the story, beginning in verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside uh, begging. Uh, Jericho was about 18 miles from Jerusalem. And it was, a, it was one of the main thoroughfares to Jerusalem. It was also six miles from the Jordan River. And so it, it was this incredibly important trade route. Um, and therefore, in Israel at the time, this was a major center for tax collection. And that will come into play in the next account that we'll look at in a moment. So anyways, Jesus and his guys, they're drawn near to Jericho. And for this blind man, this day had begun just like any other day for him. He probably woke up, shook the straw from his shabby clothes. He stretched, and then he just began tapping his way to the center of the city. He's tapping his way to the along the familiar streets that leads to the city gates. And maybe, maybe he's been lucky, and he's begged a, a, a slice of bread or a, a crust of bread off of somebody. And arriving at the gate, he takes his spot am- alongside all the other beggars. And as he sits there, the city just begins to come alive. And he starts to cry for alms. And so verse 36, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is, is, is coming by. He's passing, this Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Uh, and notice, this man's, I, I he's identified as a, as a blind beggar, right? And, and remember in that culture, um, there was no social security. There was no governmental programs to help. This guy's completely dependent on the mercy of others. So this man is blind, but just like, other, uh, just like blind people in our culture, he compensates for it by developing other areas, his other senses. And so he hears, he hears the streets coming alive, all this commotion in the crowd, and he, he must have had asked, what's going on? What's all this commotion about? And somebody tells him that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and I want you to look at what this blind man sees, what he perceives in the coming of Jesus. Look at verse 38. And he cried out, they tell him, this is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by and he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He identifies him completely different. The crowds identify him as Jesus of Nazareth, which of course he was because he was raised in Nazareth, but the blind man hears of his coming and he sees Jesus entirely different. He sees him entirely different. He perceives something that people with sight didn't see. He calls out to Jesus, son of David. That's a messianic title. That's a very, a very much a messianic title. He sees Jesus as the coming king. And the people of Israel during, during Jesus' day, they were waiting for David's true son. They were waiting for someone who would fulfill the Davidic covenant, who would sit on David's throne, who would lead Israel in righteousness, who would reestablish the kingdom. And this blind man, he hears that Jesus is there and right off the get-go, he acknowledges Jesus is the Messiah. He clearly sees Jesus as the promised Messiah. And he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And it's just so shocking that he does this. Because, do you guys remember, back in Luke chapter 4, right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, right at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he walks into a synagogue of Nazareth. And the synagogue ruler says, hey, would you like to teach today? And Jesus says, sure. And so he opens up the scroll to Isaiah 61, which is this messianic prophecy concerning what the Messiah would do when the Messiah came on the scene. And Jesus picks the spot, and he starts reading this in Isaiah 61, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus reads this out of Isaiah 61, right at the outset of his ministry. He reads it to the, to the synagogue, and then he looks at them all, and he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. <laughs> Meaning, you guys don't look all that excited about this. Here's what that means. This is so shocking. What it means is, Jesus is saying, I'm doing those things here and now. I really am the Messiah. And so when this blind beggar, now put yourself back in this scene, when this blind beggar hears that Jesus of Nazareth is in town, is in Jericho, he starts begging Jesus as the son of David to have mercy upon me. He recognizes, even though he's blind, he really sees Jesus as the messianic king and he puts tremendous faith in him. And all the rest of the crowds don't see it. So who's really blind? You see what the text is forcing you to wrestle with? Well, who's really blind? Is physical blindness the only type of blindness? Because this guy is physically blind, and yet he sees something in Jesus that the rest of the crowds don't see. And Jesus is going to seek and save him. Look at what happens, verse 39. And those who were in front of him, in front of the the blind beggar, they rebuked him telling him to be silent. Remember, this guy's an outcast, and Jesus is a respected rabbi, and so the, tr- the crowds, they're trying to keep him away. It's kind of like what they do in the Olympics. Uh, during the Olympics time, they take all the, the beggars and the poor people from the city, and they, they put them out as outcasts, they ship them away, because they don't want the, the, uh, the respected people the respected audience, to see the outcasts of that society. And that's what they're trying to do to this guy. They're trying to get him out of Jesus' way. They're, they're looking at him saying, he's just a blind beggar in a society that's filled with blind beggars. Jesus has more important people, more important things to deal with than you, blind beggar. That's what they're saying to him. The second part of verse 39. But he cried out all the more. Look at the persistence. He cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Save me. Have mercy on me, Messiah. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought near to him. Now think about this in light of that Jesus is 10 days away from his humiliation, from his brutalization and his death. 10 days. He's a dead man walking and he knows it. He's marching towards his death. And yet when an outcast of that society someone who's been pushed to the margins of that society calls out to him. He stops everything he's doing and he draws near to him. More than anything else, I want you to see and I want you to sense. More than anything else I want you to see and I want you to sense, I want you to see and sense the love of the Lord. He has the most important mission in the world to fulfill in Jerusalem in 10 days, but he will stop For hungry, hurting souls. And if you're not a Christ follower here this morning, and I know each Sunday we have a a host of people who walk through the doors who are not Christ followers, and I love that. But if you're someone who who you came in this morning and you know you're not a Christ follower, I want you simply to note Jesus' character. I want you simply to note his love for others, his love for humanity. So he stops, he completely stops, and we'll come back to that in a minute. And he commands the crowds to bring the blind man to him. And then second part of verse 40, and when he came near him, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Literally, it's, it's a, your faith has saved you. And that's referring to both a physical healing and a spiritual healing. This guy places simple, genuine, dependent faith in Christ. And his world of darkness instantly gives way to a world of life. And he opens up his eyes. Can you imagine this? He opens up his eyes and the first person he sees is the face of Christ the one who's delivered him from darkness. And look at his response, verse 43. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. This man's response, it's just perfect. He's overwhelmed with joy. He was once blind. By the way, this overwhelmed with joy, that should be the perennial note of anyone who has become a sincere disciple of Christ. They should be overwhelmed with joy. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be hard things in your life. It doesn't mean there won't be seasons where you struggle with with the questions of why. But underneath all of that should be this perennial note of joy that I was once blind, but now I see. I was once an enemy of God, but now I'm a friend of God. I was once cast off, but now I've been brought in. There's this perennial note of joy for everybody who's a, a genuine believer in Christ. Let me ask you, is that true of you? Is your life marked with joy? Or is it marked by something else? Is it marked by anger? Is it marked with divisiveness? Is it marked by some other thing other than joy? One of the, one of the genuine traits of any genuine Christian is this perennial note of joy. And again, that doesn't mean there won't be hard things. It it Doesn't mean you won't have to make hard decisions. Doesn't mean you won't walk through really hard seasons of life. But underneath all of that, is this overwhelming sense of, I can't believe I've been sought out and saved by the king of the universe. That should lead to a perennial note of joy. So this man's response, he sees it, he opens up his eyes, he looks into the face of Jesus. What do you think he's thinking? Well, what would you be thinking? you'd be thinking something along the lines of whatever this man says and wherever this man goes I'm going to follow him. And that's exactly what this guy does. He starts following Jesus. He becomes a Christ follower and out of the overflow of, his, of joy he starts praising God for what Jesus has done for him. And this is the last miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of Luke. Sight given to the blind. A clear indication to the people of Israel before the triumphal entry that Jesus is really the Messiah. Right before he begins the triumphal entry, sight given to the blind. And all of Israel should have taken notice at that point. That, oh my, this is what the Messiah would do when he comes on the scene. And look at what Jesus has done. Now, by the way, note. um, Notice the response of the crowds. When they saw what had taken place, they start praising God. Because of Jesus. Notice that, the very last thing in verse uh, 43. And all the people, meaning all the crowds, when they saw it, they gave praise to God. Now, the second scene we're gonna look at this morning is in verses one through 10 of chapter 19. And it too takes place in Jericho, which is why we're gonna make the connection this morning. So let's have a look. He entered into Jericho, and he was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. Okay, take a moment. If you've been raised in the Sunday school, go ahead and sing the little song to yourself. I know some of you guys are already doing it. Go ahead and get it out of your mind. Um, he He enters into Jericho, and here he's passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now, here's what you need to know about tax collectors. And, and I know some of you know this, but uh, maybe uh, many of you don't also. Um, tax collectors in those days were some of the most despised people in Israel. Absolutely. By the way, it's tax season. <laughs> How do you feel about tax people right now? I was on the phone with my brother the other night, and he was telling me his tax bill. It was ginormous. And he was complaining about it, and I thought, man, we have not changed all that much. Um People do not like, even, uh, I've read this week, people who work for the IRS, they don't ever actually acknowledge they work for the IRS. They just say, oh, I work for the government. (laughs) That's that's wise, because a lot of people don't like tax collectors. And in that day, uh, they were some of the most despised people in the world. Because they were Jewish people who worked for Rome. They worked for the overbearing, godless Roman government that was occupying Israel. So they were completely despised. Uh, People hated them. And so what the tax collectors would do is, again, they were Jewish, and they would make a bid to Rome to pay the taxes for that year. Uh, And whoever had the highest bid would then have the privilege of of collecting the taxes. So let's say you and a group of your friends get together to, um, to, to become tax collectors. You'd get together and you'd say, here's what we're gonna do, Rome. We're gonna give you a million dollars to collect the taxes of Judea and Galilee. And if you were the highest bidder, Rome would say, okay, you've got yourself a deal. And so the group would pay the million dollars and then you would have the power of Rome. You would have the authority of the Roman government behind you to collect taxes and to recover your outlay. And I promise you, they always recovered their outlay. And then some. I was reading this week, uh, tax collectors in that day, they were charging people upwards of 70 to 80% of their income. Yeah, <laughs> you think we got it bad. They were charging 70 to 80% of their income, so they were ripping people off. And if you didn't pay, Well, they had the power of Rome behind them. And they would haul you and your family off to a Roman prison until someone in your extended family paid the bill. So again, they were despised by the Jews. They couldn't be judges. They couldn't be witnesses in court. They couldn't enter the synagogue. They were actually viewed as apostate to the Lord. People despised them because of their work. And again, they were some of the most hated people in Israel. And both, both the liberal wing of Judaism and the conservative wing of Judaism said that it was good and prudent for a person to lie to the tax collector. <laughs> I love that. Everybody said, no, you go ahead and lie to that person and God won't think any less of you. And you can understand why they'd say that. They were being cheated and taken advantage of. And so Luke, he opens up the scene. Now put yourself back in the scene. He opens up the scene By telling us, as Jesus enters into Jericho, a man by the name of Zacchaeus is there who just happens to be the chief tax collector. And then he tells us he's rich. He's filthy rich in every way. And yet the riches don't seem to satisfy him. And so he's curious about Jesus. Because look at verse three. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was so curious about this Jesus. He's heard a lot about him. Hasn't been able to see him. And so when he hears that Jesus is coming down the way, he's completely curious about him. But on account of the crowd, second part of verse three, he couldn't because he was small of nature, small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. So we don't know a lot about Zacchaeus other than he's rich. But we do know one of Zacchaeus' underlings, again a guy by the name of Levi, had become one of Jesus' disciples earlier on. And he started following Jesus, and so maybe, just maybe, Zacchaeus wants to get a glimpse of him. Possibly he wants to hear what Jesus has to say. Whatever the case, he is extremely curious about Jesus. So much so, he opens himself up to ridicule by climbing up a sycamore tree. Because if you're a short dude and you have to climb up a tree to see Jesus, you know you're gonna be ridiculed, right? Is that not true? Everybody's gonna say, oh, look at little short little Zacchaeus here, short man syndrome, Zacchaeus climbing up into a tree. He knows he's putting himself in a position where he could be ridiculed for his curiosity about Jesus, and yet he takes a tremendous risk and he climbs up this tree to get a better look at Jesus. But he's gonna get so much more than he bargained for. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, (laughs) just out of the blue, hey Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. And it's almost like Jesus by calling out to Zacchaeus is saying, you know Zacchaeus, I know you're curious about me but I know everything about you and I love you still. And I'm gonna come and I'm gonna eat at your house, and I'm gonna eat at your table. Because Jesus just says, I'm coming, I'm coming, look at what he says. He says, I must stay at your house. He's gonna now come to Zacchaeus' house and eat at his table. And meals in those days, um, meals in those days were way more than just an opportunity to consume food. One scholar put it like this, listen to what he says. He says it would be difficult to overestimate, be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Now look at what Jesus is doing. Look how radical Jesus is. We miss the radical nature of what Jesus is doing here because we think, well, it's just a meal. No, no, it's not. Jesus is going to the most despised person in that culture and says, I want to completely identify with you. I want to have a friendship with you. I want to have unity with you. As Zacchaeus perched himself up in this tree to get a glimpse of Jesus, Jesus comes and he stops and he looks up at Zacchaeus and he calls him by name. And by doing so, Jesus is essentially saying, you thought you were seeking me out, but oh no, all the time. I'm actually seeking you out. And I'm coming to share my life with you, Zacchaeus. And he says this in front of the entire crowd. This is so amazing. And he calls him by name. By the way, he calls you by name. And he shares his life with you. That's how you were brought into the kingdom. He calls you. He seeks you out. He calls you by name. And he shared his life with you. That's exactly how you were brought into the kingdom. And that's what he's doing here with Zacchaeus. Look at verse 6. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down. And received him joyfully. There it is again. A note of joy. He comes down. He received him joyfully. And when they all saw it. When all the crowd saw it. They all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Hmm. The crowds are now grumbling about Jesus. Remember, these are the same people who just a moment before were praising God because of Jesus. They like the miracles he performs, but not the people that he associates with. They've rejected Zacchaeus because he was a rotten tax collector. But now Jesus accepts them and there's this unbelievable tension in the crowds. It's unbelievable tension amongst the moral majority here because they're like, we won't have anything to do with him. He's a known sinner. This is the moral majority saying, no, we're going to look down upon this person. This this would be the equivalent of, think of the most despised occupation in our culture, Abortion doctor, how would you feel if Jesus walked into an abortion clinic and said, hey doctor, you and I tonight, we're gonna have dinner, your place. You might be a little taken aback by that, would you not? <laughs> and that's exactly what they were feeling. They were stunned and offended. They, again, the crowds were like the moral majority of their day saying, no, we look down upon these people. These people are known sinners. And Jesus says, oh no, these are exactly the people I came for. And I'm going to reach out to this person. And so, verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This is just remarkable. Jesus' incredible generosity towards him In wanting a relationship with him has now transformed. It compels Zacchaeus to be generous towards others, which is a sure sign of this man's conversion. It's a sure sign of this man's repentance and faith because the thing he loved the most, wealth, the only reason you became a tax collector in those days was to accumulate wealth. The only thing he really loved was wealth, and now he gives it away joyfully. He goes from being incredibly greedy to incredibly generous, from taking advantage of others to looking to meet the needs of others. His whole life in an instant, has been melted and shaped by the love of Christ. It's remarkable, really. He says, I give away half of my possessions. I give away half of my possessions to the poor. And in Judaism, um, you would be considered incredibly generous if you gave away 20% of one's possessions. And anything more than that would be considered foolishness. It would not be considered prudent. But Zacchaeus is willing to give away 50% of his wealth. And then he says, and those I've defrauded, I'll restore it fourfold. And again, that's going above and beyond what was necessary because in the Mosaic law, it said to make restitution, you need to make it at 120%. Make 100, at 120%. So you make full restitution and then you add 20% to it. But Zacchaeus says, I'm making restitution at 400% of the value of anybody that I have defrauded. This is the evidence of the genuineness of his faith. The thing that he once loved his heart values have been reversed and he's willing to give away the thing that he most loved. And Jesus recognizes it for what it is. Look at what he says, verse nine. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. (laughs) Just an amazing statement. Salvation has come. This man has been saved, completely saved. He also is a son of Abraham. And, it, and again, this would have infuriated the crowds because Jesus is saying, this man that you've rejected, this man that you've written off, I've completely accepted him. He's been accepted by God through faith. He now has a right relationship with God, not because of anything he did. The giving away of his wealth and the making of restitution was a response to the forgiveness he's already received. Jesus is saying, this man, by putting simple, genuine, radical faith in me, has been completely restored to God. He's a son of Abraham. And he's looking around at all these guys who they're pretty sure they're really the sons of Abraham. And he's saying, oh no, this guy's a son of Abraham. And Jesus, by doing that, he's doing two things. He's declaring that, yeah, Zacchaeus has been restored to God, not based on his Jewish lineage, but through simple faith, Salvation is not about lineage. It's not about your family history. It's not about any of those things. It's about putting simple faith in Christ. It's about putting genuine faith in Christ. But then, secondly, what Jesus is doing is he's challenging the community to welcome him and to restore him to the community. And the gospel now, listen the gospel always has social implications huge social implications. He's saying he's been reconciled to God which therefore means community, if you're really the people of God, you'll, recon- you'll reconcile with him also. He's been restored to God, which means people of God community, you should restore him back as well. He should be welcomed and embraced back into the community. He's putting the, oh, now look, he's putting the onus on the community to welcome him back. And I love that because it reminds us that we're all on equal footing before the Lord, right? We're all on equal footing before the Lord because we're all sinners who have been saved by the grace of the king through faith. And if God forgives them, and if God welcomes them, then the response on my part as a member of the community, the Christian community, is then to make sure that I'm doing my best to welcome them back as well. Yeah? Well, Jesus then closes out this account um, by saying what happened with Zacchaeus is really what Jesus is all about. Look at verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the theme verse for the entire Gospel of Luke, and it's the heart of Jesus' ministry. It's the heart of his mission in his life. He he came to seek and to save out those who are far from God. And any one of those people who would put simple, genuine faith in him would be welcomed and received. And Luke leaves the account right there and we'll do the same. Okay, here's what I wanna do. I wanna prepare to close. Now note what I said there. I want to prepare to close. I don't wanna actually close, this is just preparation. So I wanna prepare to close by asking two questions. Uh, One for the Christian, and then one for someone who is a pre-Christian. Someone who has not yet come to faith in Christ, and yet you're curious about Christ. So one question for a Christian, one for a pre-Christian. Here's the question for the Christian. Uh, if you're a Christian, ask yourself this. Are you committed to Jesus' mission? Are you committed to Jesus' mission? Jesus says he came to seek and save the lost, meaning that he came for the least, the lost, and the left out. So let me ask you, Christian, Are you committed to Jesus' mission? And before you answer, I want you to note that there's a gigantic cost to it if you are. Huge cost. Because what did Jesus lose when he reached out to Zacchaeus? You know what he lost? Social capital. He lost a ton of social capital. As he came into Jericho, he was riding a wave of public adulation. Remember, the crowd saw what he did with the blind beggar and they praised God because of it. But the moment he dared to reach out to Zacchaeus, the glorifying of God became the grumbling against Jesus. Did you see that in the text? The moment he reached out to Zacchaeus, they were no longer praising God because of Jesus. They were grumbling against Jesus. Now ask yourself this question Who was the grumbling by? It was by the religious community. It was by the people who identified as the people of God. It was the religious right. It was the moral majority. It was the ones who prided themselves on their morality. It was the people who prided themselves on their religiosity. And I want you to see that if you're committed to Jesus' mission, if you're really committed to Jesus' mission of reaching the least, the lost, and the left out, it'll cost you social capital, usually amongst fellow Christians. Why? Because they will grumble about who you're associating with. And you just got to be aware of that. If you're really going to say, no, my, my mission is Jesus' mission, My mission is to reach out to those who are so far from God that they don't ever think God would want anything to do with them. My mission is to seek and save the uh, the least, the left out, and the lost. If that's really what you're going to say, you have to recognize there's going to be grumbling against you. People will not want to associate with you. They will be upset that you're associating with with those type of folks. And the only way, now, now listen, and that's a real That's a real power play, and the only way to move beyond it, the only way to move past that pressure is to root your identity, not in your reputation. The only way to move past it is to root your identity, not in your reputation, not in what others say about you, but in what Jesus has done for you. Because like Zacchaeus, he has sought you out. He has called you by name. He has bore the cost, and he has restored you to God at great cost to himself. At great cost to himself, and then he calls you to go and do likewise. May we be a people who are committed to advancing the mission of Christ here in the Rogue Valley, regardless of the cost to us. So that's the first, the first question. If you're a Christian, are you committed to Jesus' mission, knowing that it's gonna cost you in certain ways? Now, if you're a pre Christian, If you came in here and you didn't, you came in this morning and you you did not identify, you don't identify as a Christian. Here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice that the story of the blind beggar and the story of Zacchaeus are both salvation stories. And Jesus says his mission is to seek and save the lost. And he says salvation is found in the person of Jesus. Nothing else. Salvation, he says, today, he, in the Zacchaeus account, he says, today, look at what he says. Look at verse nine. He says, today salvation has come to this house. Well, who came to Zacchaeus' house? Jesus. So where is salvation found? It's in the person of Jesus. Which means salvation, your relationship with Jesus it is 100% the basis of salvation. So are you saved? Maybe you came here this morning like Zacchaeus. Maybe you entered in through the doors and you're very curious about Jesus. This, this Jesus that you've heard so much about. And as we approach Easter, you will hear more and more about Jesus on PBS. You will hear a ton about Jesus and maybe you're curious about him. Well, if that's you, you know what you have to do? You have to do exactly what Zacchaeus did. Well, what did he do? He put himself in position, he purposely put himself in position to hear and see Jesus directly, which means for you, if you're curious about Jesus, what it means for you is you have to do two things. You have to come before the scriptures. You have to open up the word of God, go into one of the gospel accounts, and you have to see Jesus. You have to see him for who he really is, the real Jesus. And then I would encourage you to keep coming back. As we move through the Easter season, if you're someone who's curious about Jesus, come to the scriptures, and then also do the other challenging thing and walk, continue to walk through the church doors. Open yourself up to hearing about Jesus. Now listen, um, if, you're also, if you're a pre-Christian, ask yourself this question. If being a Christian simply means being a follower of Christ, being a follower of this man, Because that's what it means. Being a Christian does not mean I I agree with every other Christian in the universe. You don't have to agree with every other Christian in the universe. I'm married to a Christian, I don't agree with her half the time. (laughs) Right? So you don't have to agree with every other Christian. You can look at other Christians and believe me, a pastor knows all the dumb and silly and stupid things some Christians do in the name of Christ. You do not have to identify with every other Christian. But if being a Christian, you're not being converted to Christians, you're being converted to Christ. If being a Christian means becoming a follower of Christ and allowing his words and his ways, the love of Christ... If being a Christian means allowing his words and his ways to shape my life, why wouldn't I want to be? What is there not to like about this man? His personality is the most winsome personality the world has ever seen. His wisdom and teaching is unparalleled and his love, my goodness, his love is matchless. What is there not to like about this man? Nothing. Which means, if, if you equate, equate, now listen, there's a lot of people who are not Christians who equate becoming a Christian with essentially becoming a re- Republican. That is not true. That is not true. A lot of people think becoming a Christian essentially equates with being supportive of Donald Trump. That is not true. You're not coming to any of those things. You're coming to this man. This man whose love is matchless, whose wisdom is unparalleled. This is who you're coming to. You're being converted to him. What is there not to like about this man? Nothing. And becoming a Christ follower is really about three things. And we'll close with this. Becoming a Christ follower is really about three things. It's about having our sight restored. It's about having sight restored. And what I mean by that is that becoming a Christian is really about seeing Jesus as he truly is. Seeing him as he truly is, the Messiah, the Savior, King, this blind man, he saw Jesus was the, the son of David, the promised Messiah, and that's the key to the whole story. Becoming a Christian is seeing Jesus not simply as a good teacher, not simply as a traveling guru or a wise sage or one of many paths to God. No, 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 no. You need to see him as he presents himself. God incarnate. The saving king. So first and foremost, becoming a Christian is about having our sight restored and seeing Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. Secondly, it's about having your heart values renovated. Becoming a Christian is about having your heart values renovated, and we see that in the story of Zacchaeus. He goes from being greedy to generous, from taking advantage of others to actively looking to serve others. So his heart values, all of them, were under renovation. And let's be honest, we all have Things in our character and we have heart values that are jacked up and they're sinful. And maybe like Zacchaeus, you're, you're greedy and you seek to take advantage of others. Or maybe you're addicted to some, some type of thing. Maybe you're addicted to alcohol. Now again, uh, alcohol, it's not sinful to enjoy an alcoholic beverage, but it is sinful to be mastered by it. So maybe you're addicted to alcohol or, or you're addicted to pornography or you're addicted to whatever. Or some other type of thing. Jesus wants to free you from that. He wants to break the bondage to that. And the great news of the gospel is that when you come to Christ, this really is the great news of the gospel. When you come to Christ, he now holds the keys to your heart. And he sets about to renovate your heart values and to transform your character into the person you were created to be and the person you really desire to be. The person you pretend to be on Sunday morning. Right, because we all put on a little good showy face on Sunday mornings. No, he's actually setting about. When you give your life to Christ, he has the keys to your heart, and he sets about a renovation process to transform your heart values, so that to the person that you were created to be, and the person that you actually have longed to be all of your life, and he'll do it. I I gave you this quote a couple weeks ago by Alan Redpath, the great retired. He's now passed away former pastor at Moody Bible Church, he said the conversion of the soul is the miracle of the moment. The manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. And that is really true. He will transform you into the person you were always created to be but it's a lifetime renovation. Paul puts it like this in Philippians. He says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Which means every single one of us we're all a renovation project under the direction of the Lord Jesus. He's the master builder who's restructuring our heart values, who's renovating our character after his. So becoming a Christ follower, it's about having our sight restored, it's about having our heart values renovated, then lastly, here's what it's about. It's about having your sins removed and new life being received. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this home, meaning Zacchaeus has been saved and inherited eternal life. Not just a quantity of life, but a new quality of life. Which should beg this question, how is Jesus able to offer this? How is he able to remove my sins and then to extend to me new life? We'll go back to the very first three verses we read this morning. What does he say he's going to do? He says he's going to the cross. He's going to lay down his life for you and then three days later he's going to rise from the grave and he's going to take on new life and he's going to extend it to anybody who pledges uh, unending love and loyalty to him. That's how he's able to do it. You see, at the cross, at the cross, Jesus took the blame and bore the burden for all of your sin and then three days later he rose to new life. That's what we're about to celebrate in Easter. He rose to new life. (laughs) That's amazing. Yes, he rose to new life. And when you place your simple, genuine, radical faith in him as your Lord and Savior, your sins, listen, your sins are paid for. They're completely removed from the east as to the west. They're completely removed. And more than that, you receive new life in his name. And through his spirit, which now lives in you as one of his disciples, You're enabled to actually live and to actually love like Christ. Now, if you're not a Christian, ask yourself, what is there not to like about that? My sins are removed. I receive new life, not just a quantity of life, but a new quality of life. His spirit now resides in me, so I'm actually empowered to live and to love like Christ. There's nothing not to like about that message because the person of Jesus universally is seen, he is universally seen as the most attractive person in the world. His character is universally seen as that. So what is there not to like about that? Nothing, which then means you should come to him in faith. Well, how? How do I do that? Here's how. You ask the Lord to forgive you of all of your sins. If you're not a Christian right now, you simply ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins. You come under his word and his ways as the Lord of your life. You ask him to forgive you, that's him as savior. He will forgive you of all of your sins. He is your savior. But then he's also your Lord. And you come under his word and under his ways as the Lord of his life. And then you go under the waters of baptism. And we have a baptism come up on Easter morning. And what baptism is, it's signifying your old life being put to death because of, the, because of the work of the cross, and then being raised up in new life. Your sins being cleansed and raising up in new life. And again, we have a baptism coming up on Easter morning. And if you're giving your life to Christ right now, um, come up afterwards. There'll be people up here who would like to talk with you and pray with you. And then be baptized on Easter morning. All right? Let's pray. Why don't you stand then we'll pray. And we'll sing. And we will sing because, as I've said before, liberated people are a singing people. Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel. We thank you that the Lord's heart has always been all along to seek out and to save those people who are far from God. And Father, if we're a Christian right now, we acknowledge that at one point we were far from you. And you have sought us out in the person of Jesus Christ and you have saved us through the work of the cross and the resurrection. And Father, we pray, we pray as people who belong to you now, we pray for those who have heard this message, who have enjoyed fellowship with us this morning, who have been curious about Christ for maybe a long time, that they would be putting genuine faith in you this morning as well, Lord. Uh, That your salvation would come to their house and to their homes, their lives this morning. We thank you, Father. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.